absolutely ridiculous. Okay, everyone, welcome to Around the Course Squash podcast. We have a legend in, in the shape of Stuart Davenport. Stuart was, in 1980, he was the number one seed for the World Junior Championships, only to lose out in the semifinals to Chris Dittmar. He himself is a legend. In 1982, he was British Junior Open champion. He reached a career high of world number three and made three consecutive British Open semifinals, only to be pipped by arguably the greatest player of all time, JK, in 84, 85, 86. Stuart Davenport, how are you doing, man? Thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Arthur. That was a nice, that was a nice little intro. Um, I, I like the idea that when you say that I was pipped by Jahangir Khan, I quite like that idea. I'm not sure how much it relates to the truth. I'd, I'd suggest thrashed is probably a bit of... Really <laughs> yeah fair enough i mean he was a bit of a beast <laughs> but uh tell us a little bit about your career i mean you know british junior open champion in 1982 you're the one seed as a world junior champion you obviously felt well more than felt you knew and and, and those around you would have known that you were a great player tell us a little bit about did you stay in new zealand did you move to the uk and base yourself there and travel to tournaments what was it like back in back in the 80s a, you're testing my memory here um I mean, it's when you actually introduce me like that, I, I wonder whether you're talking about someone else because it's it's been so long that that um, and also when I look at squash now and I watch the guys on TV now playing, I, I struggle to recognise that it's the same game. It is the same game clearly, but but there are a lot of differences differences in those days. I mean, one of the things when when I was really young, we had a lot of financial support um, in New Zealand. We had a lot of financial support. Um, Right from the beginning, I was sort of, I was sort of ranked in the top two or three juniors in the world, and that sort of grabbed some attention in terms of getting government money. So, the, the, the transition for us was reasonably comfortable in the respect that we were we were funded to go to Europe to stay in Europe. We were we were um, we had assistance from people once we got over there. So, the transition actually from juniors to playing pro squash was was wasn't that difficult having said that you know there's a, there was a major difference in those days is that there were um there were probably i'm going to suggest to you probably 35 to 40 people trying to make a go of it now there's like i don't know how many but you know you're probably going to multiply that by three or four times people really having a go at the sport yeah so um it was different, and it was the same i mean you know that 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 whole process of trying to get in the top of the top to the top rankings and to the top in the world was no different. The whole ranking system is basically identical now to what it was in those days. Yeah. Um, and, and that wasn't a huge difference. I mean, the difference for us was that, was that um, you know, and I always say this, I'm, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the fact that I played what I call a non-stadium sport. And it's easy for me to say this looking back on it, but, but most of the, the squash that I played was in clubs. Um, you know, the club scene was incredibly strong in those days. Um, you know, I mentioned to you that in, that in those days, they said that there were 1.2 million, in the 80s, there were 1.2 million active squash players in Germany. Now, I don't know about the numbers, but every single little town you went to in Germany had squash centres that were full of people playing. So, so you know, the glass courts sort of came around in the, 80, in the late 80s. Well, no, early 80s, probably 85, 86. But most of our squash was played in clubs. And, and that was a good thing because, you know, 
in general, you get to mix with people, you know. I, I can't think of anything worse than playing a stadium sport and you go into the change rooms, you go back in the change rooms afterwards and you do media interviews and that's about it. So it was really, really club-based in those days, but incredibly active. Yeah, it's interesting you say that, say that about uh, Germany because I remember when, you know, I and, and Stuart was probably in the same boat. We started on the tour around the same time. The Bundesliga was huge. You had tons of divisions, tons of teams. And certainly in the later years, there was, there was far less. There was maybe four teams and they had, a, you know, two or three weekends of the year. Yeah, well, but, but I think that's because squash took a real beating in the, in the 90s. You know, look, I know from when I, I had only had one sponsor in my entire squash career. I played with Oliver, Oliver Sports, who still sponsors Simon Posner. And I'm still actually friends with the guy who owns it. He owned it in the early days, and I'm still in contact with him now. And we used to get in this, he used to have this great big American, um, American camper van, like one of those really massive ones. And we used to just go from club to club. And we used to have this, this thing whereby I'd play the top three players in the club. Best of three against the top three players in the club. Absolutely every club full of spectators. And then we'd go and sleep in our van and we'd be off to the next place. And we used to do like 10, 12 nights in a row. And he used to have this little... Uh, he used to have windsurfers on top of the, the van. He, he said to me at, at one stage, he said, you a bit tired of this, Stuart? And I said, yeah, I'm getting a bit tired of it. And he said, and so we'd head off for the lake, to the lakes um, and go windsurfing. And we had these two little fold-away seats that we sat on top of the van and rested for a couple of days. And then we're back on the road again off to, off to play all these club, club dates. <laughs> and, I, and, you know, I mean, that was really fun because there's no pressure. You know, all you're doing is you're feeding off your ranking. You're playing top club players who, as you know, you know, you don't even have to, you don't even have to raise a sweat to beat. And you get to sit in the bar afterwards and talk to the locals, eat the food and drink the beers. I mean, I see that as the perfect professional squash career. Everything's (laughs) focused on the idea of playing these big tournaments, but the big tournaments were a pain. I mean, that's when you had to defend your ranking. (laughs) Were you based in Germany, Stuart? No, I was based in England. You know, there was no one to train with in Germany. So I, I actually lived in Leicester for quite a while. I used to play um, uh, the league in England for Leicester. So I, I, I based in Leicester. But I was in Germany probably a lot of my time. I mean, as you know, you need people to play with, to, yeah. to, to train with. And, and they were all available in England. And in those days, they had so many good county-type players that you could train with. Yeah. And you retired quite young, Stuart. You were 24, 25. And like I said earlier on, you were at that age to be young, to be making semifinals of the British Open. What was the reasoning behind that? Had you just had enough or? I, I often think about it. And so I listen to the interviews of these guys now. And I mean, admittedly, they just churn out the cliches. But, you know, the, the, the thing that you hear constantly is you hear them talking about how they're so glad to be doing the thing, thing they love. And I, I, my feeling was that was, it was a really fun thing to do as long as you were zipping up the rankings. Really fun. But once you got to a really high ranking and you've got people like Rodney Martin and, and you know, these guys coming at you, I really did not think that was a lot of fun. And I, I look back on it and say, I wasn't really cut out for this, this thing. Um, I enjoyed it for 
six or seven years, but seriously, to keep doing it through into my 30s, I thought, I, I just really do not want to do this. Um, uh, and so I sort of manoeuvred my way out of it. Um, and, you know, I often hear young people now talking about the idea of turning their, whatever their passion is, they want to turn their passion um, into a job. And I say, just don't do it. I mean, squash was my passion. <laughs> squash was my passion. I loved it when I was an amateur and when I was going up the rankings. But I, I tell you something, sitting there having people trying to knock you off and, and it has then become a job. And you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You know, when it's a job, it's a job. And, the, and I say preserve your passion. Don't turn it into a job because you'll destroy it. Do you think playing in the era of Jahangir was part of the problem there where you maybe didn't think being world number one or winning some of those big titles was attainable and you were, as you say, you were looking to defend what you already had rather than push on and maybe challenge for number one in the world? Do you think it could have been different in a different era? Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I mean, you know, the, the, I think there is a characteristic um, um, that you either have got or you don't have. Do you actually see yourself as a world champion? And I never really saw myself as a world champion. Um, apart, you know, partly because I just got hammered by Jahangir on some occasions. Like, you know, I played him in, Swiss, in the Swiss Masters final. And I, I clearly remember it was, we were something like 12 minutes in and it was nil all in the first. You know, and those <laughs> are the days when we had, when we had um, you know, up to nine hand in, hand out. Um, and... I lost to him 9-1-9-love-9-1 in 54 minutes. And I just thought, Christ, 54 minutes of hard, hard work for two points. It sort of just destroys you. Now, not everyone was like that. Like, he had his off days as well. But the problem is you get a couple of hammerings like that. You try that after getting a hammering like that. It's no fun. <laughs> I've got plenty. I've had plenty of those hammerings. <laughs> Not as have. bad as that. <laughs> like, I don't actually mind 30 minutes of, you know, when you're just wiped off the court. But when you feel as though you're in the match and you get two points. <laughs> I had that conversation quite recently about how sometimes when you play worse and come off, it isn't as bad because you can sort of dismiss it and say, well, next time I'll play better. But when you play well and you still come off having lost, you're like, well, what am I going to do better or different next time? And that's exactly the situation. And, you know, we, we, we used to go up against them. It's easy. Rodney Martin and these guys talk about it now, and Rodney Martin has said to me, oh, he, he's regularly called me a pussy in those days, you know, since uh, I've run into him since. And, and I, you know, that's fine. They sort of got him on his downturn in the beginning of the 90s where they could get on top of him. But Rodney Martin got as many thrashings as I did, you know. And, and, and admittedly, he got up and managed to get a win against them, but only when he was on his way down. And also, at that point, Jansha uh, came along and did the same thing almost. So. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm, with, I'm with you, Stuart. I'd prefer, the, uh, I'd prefer going club to club, beating up on some locals, <laughs> having a few beers, and uh, nice schnitzel. <laughs> well, I mean, the, the, the game, it's no different now to what it was in those days. It's like, you know, you, you go and get your points and get your ranking so you can feed off your ranking, you know, so you can pick up those gigs, the easy gigs, in between the hard ones, which is the, the big tournaments. So I figure if you don't enjoy the time that you've got <laughs> when you're not hammering it on one of those big events, then you're crazy. 
I mean, I, I talked to, I've had some stuff to do with, with Paul Cole and I said to him, you know, I, and I, I, first of all, I, want to, I don't want to portray myself as Paul Cole's coach or have, having had anything major to do with his rise, but I, 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 I am friends with him and I am in regular contact with him. And I was also involved with him when, uh, you know, he, um, when he was 60 in the world trying to get somewhere. Um, and I said to him one thing about squash. I said, consider this. Uh, this is possibly the only job you were ever going to do in your life where you're your own boss, right? And I said, well, before you assemble a team around you of people telling you what to do, consider the idea of going it alone, making your own calls, and living and dying on your own decisions. Um, because to me, that was the fun of squash. The idea of having a team around you, like physios and coaches and people telling you what to do. I can tell you one thing. Since I've stopped playing squash, I've done a lot of jobs and I've had a shitload of people telling me what to do. And, uh, and I actually enjoyed the idea of, of making my own calls and living and dying by those calls. I know that's an old school attitude and I know you'll, you'll sort of laugh at that a little bit. Uh, and I laugh at it too because it's so out of out of sync with what these guys are doing now but i'm more thinking about when you're looking back uh, uh, after 30 years about what you got out of it and i got six years of being self-employed uh, these guys get six years of other people telling them what to do just going back to uh, jk a little bit like how, how good was he like what was it like to play him um, I, I want to tell you a Jahanga Khan. I was thinking about Jahanga Khan uh, before this, and I want to tell you a story um, about a Jahanga Khan story from the first time I ever saw him. And that was in Melbourne in the World Amateurs, right? And you guys will know, know what I'm talking about here in this picture. He was 15. I was 17 playing in the World Amateurs. In those days, the World Amateurs were not close to the professionals, but if you were the top amateur in the world, you'd slot in probably about 16 in the world and the, as far as the pros are concerned. So you weren't a long way off it like you are nowadays, you know? I mean, a top amateur won't be top 100 in the world, will they? Now? No, nowhere near. No, probably not. Oh, Stevie. <laughs> so he, he's playing this, and I, and I was there with a guy, uh, Paul Vigus, who was a mate of mine, or we were juniors together, and we were watching this young guy hitting the ball up and up and down the wall. And I, said, I turned to my mate Paul and I said, "Hey, this guy looks really good." You know, this was Jahanga Khan. We didn't even know his name. And my mate Paul turned and he says, "Mate, they all look good in the warm up." <laughs> and and anyway, so this uh, Jahanga went on. He played Lars Kavant in the first round of the World Amateurs, and Lars Kavant was probably eighth best amateur in the world. And he beat him 10-8 in the fifth after a massive game. And I remember Lars in the change rooms just couldn't believe that he'd lost to a 15-year-old. Um, but every round through that tournament, Jahanga just got better and better. And, and, and you know what it's like. It's really hard to raise your sights that much. You know, normally you sort of get one round further than you normally get. And you go, well, that's okay this time. Next time I'll do better. He just raised the sights more and more and more. And to win the world amateur at 15. And now I was 17 and fancying myself um, as a junior, and I was just totally disillusioned by that little exercise, a 15-year-old winning the world amateur. Um, and I think that says a lot, uh, really a lot about him, is that that ability to, to every round, raise his sights, raise his sights, raise his sights, um, it sort of set the pattern for later on. 
Um, you asked a specific question about playing against him, and um, you know when you're, you know, this idea of when you're going up the rankings, you get a level above, and you check to see whether you're comfortable at that pace that the person, the person's playing it. And once you get comfortable at that pace, you can move up to the next level. Like when you went on with Jahanga, the pace was like it was just clinging on. You were clinging on constantly, and it was not like that with any of the others. It wasn't like that with Janshir. You know, Janshir, you were in the rallies. You just wouldn't win many rallies, but the the Jahanga, the pace was just went on and on and on. His best shot was, I still say, his best shot was a straight drive. He just used a straight drive constantly, uh, really hit it hard and really hit it accurately, and it just made open up so many opportunities for him. The word that always springs to mind when I go back and watch Jahangir is relentless, and I think that... He, he's relentless, saying. yeah. I mean, it's really hard to talk about that. You know, we're talking about probably the greatest player of all time, and I... I I'm, I don't know. I've never played El Shabagi or these guys. I've watched them play. But um, uh, he was everything, really. And and uh, he just didn't do anything wrong. And he seemed to have a real appetite for it as well. You know, he seemed to just keep, want to keep going. And, 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 you know, you might get bored winning 500 games in a row. I'd like to give that a go. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, yeah. none of us can answer that question. <laughs> no. no, I thought I noticed something similar in like Mustafa Saul over the last uh, little while, and specifically at like the JP uh, Morgan Tournament of Champions here in New York. Like, I remember he played my younger brother Nick, who was just on the podcast. Um, what would it, it would have been maybe two September's ago now, um, yeah. and that was in a. 10 or 15 K in London, Ontario. And yeah. our, and I think my brother was up to love kind of had him on the ropes and he ended up getting a 20 minute injury timeout and uh, coming back and winning. And I was like, okay, this kid's good, but he's clearly not there yet. And then this would be what's, you know, 16 months later in New York, he had more confidence than probably anyone in the tournament. And um, just, you know, like, that will to beat anyone he came against. And yeah. you don't see, you, you don't see that level of like confidence and toughness in a, in, in players, unless they are kind of headed straight to the top. It seems like. We used to, you know, I, I clearly remember having discussions with like Chris Dittmar and some of the guys at, at the top. And we used to carefully make sure we identified guys like that, you know, like, uh, and we used to plan to, we used to, you know, people that didn't know their limitations were dangerous. So we used to make sure that we, that we tried to hammer them to beat them into some sort of submission. But it really was a little, you know, network of guys at the top saying, saying you've got to get that guy because I tell you what, if he gets a few wins under his belt, he's going to get dangerous. So you're playing him next. You better sort him out. And if you don't sort him out, you better. Otherwise, our, our, uh, all of our careers are in danger here. <laughs> so, so you went through this process of identifying the people who were dangerous and you did whatever you could to sort them out. And I clearly remember, they will deny it now, but I clearly remember those discussions with the other guys at the top and, and, uh, and 
how planning how we could identify and beat the <laughs> because we wanted to keep our spot. <laughs> no, part of the problem with those type of characters is that they're so determined and driven that they might almost just go away and work even harder and come back even better. So, so. I look, it, it, some of them were just an irresistible force. I mean, Rodney Martin, you could sort of try and sort him out as much as you want, but Jesus, he wouldn't give a toss. But, <laughs> but you know, there were people that could, you could get to psychologically and try to beat them into some sort of submission early. Um, you know, this was our whole game, is, is we were trying to keep our spots. And if we could band together to be able to do that, then, then wouldn't you do that? And at the very least, you get to claim a win over one of the future greats and say, yeah, I beat him. Yeah, and by the, <laughs> way, by the way, I just want to, on record, I beat, Jahan, I beat Jansher Khan 3-0 in the French Open. He got about eight <laughs> points off me. That game was 15, but, you know. Not a big deal. Who, who cares? I'm still, I'm still having that win. <laughs> I beat, Die- for the record, I beat Diego Elias 3-1. Did you? Yeah, yeah. Did you? Oh, yeah, yeah. Obviously. He was 19. He was just, it was just oh, after. He was 11 or something. Yeah, 11. Oh, I got him when he was 11. It was great. <laughs> Crushed him. <laughs> um, speaking of, you know, uh, Asal and, and the Egyptians, you were coached by, you had an Egyptian coach in your early years. Uh, what's, what's your take on the Egyptian dominance in squash at the minute? And what was it like back in your day? Yeah, um... I mean, New Zealand was in a funny, was in a funny situation. Um, we were always in a funny situation, like I said before, is that we're stuck away in the, in the middle of the Pacific. So we, we don't get access to a lot of things, a lot of, you know, a lot of expertise in a lot of areas. But we happen to have, like, a, a guy called Mohamed Dadia, who was, I, I, I'm going to suggest to you, he was the best coach in the world at that stage. And I, I know Susan Devoy, she, she claims that he had a huge influence on her. But... Um, he was a a complete coach, you know. Like uh, I always, you know, I always remember him being uh, uh, interested in the whole of the player rather than just certain parts. And I'll, I'll give you an example: is that I, I was never the fittest guy in the world, uh, fittest player in the world. I, I I tended to rely more on on shot playing. Um, but I remember I was told by so many people, "You got to get fitter. You got to get fitter." And um, I, I went to Dardia and I said to him, you know, I, I guess I have to face it. I've got to do more training and get fitter and uh, to compete with these guys. And he said, yeah, you could do that. He said, but I'm going to tell you, this isn't, uh, this is not a zero-sum sum game. He said, basically, you improve your fitness, he says, and you'll rely on fitness more. And he says, your shot playing will go. So he says you can't just take one part of your game and improve it and expect that everything else is going to stay, stay the same. He said, I'm going to advise you to, to make up your mind what you are and focus on that and don't go down the same route as everyone else. Just because everyone else is getting fit, you, you don't want to necessarily go down that route. Now, that, that's a sort of a, a quite a radical uh, view, you know, um, and... But he was just full of this. I, I, I'll tell you another Dadia story. So I, was, I was playing at 18, and I was probably second, third best junior in the world. And he took me aside at one stage, and I was really getting into it, and I was training hard, and I was really ambitious, and I was really focused. And he t- took me apart, t- took me aside, and he says to me, Stuart, I just want to tell you something. He says, squash is really, really important. I said, yeah. And he says, 
girls are more important. <laughs> and I said, I said, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, so I better get out there a bit more, should I? <laughs> <laughs> so you turned your focus. <laughs> You're saying, don't lock myself in the squash club every day. Yeah. And I mean, what you may say is that that's part of the sort of the, I call the times that we had as amateur professional times. We made a living and we made actually a really good living in those days, surprisingly enough. But it was sort of more of an amateur uh, an amateur approach. Um, but he was a pretty serious guy, man. He wanted you to be the best, but he's just arguing for some balance, you know, Um and he always used to say, you know, this obsessive nature is just not a good thing for you, short term or long term. And, you know, I have a lot of memories of him since as I got older and as I started to do lots of different jobs and lots of different things, that he was just one of those complete coaches. You know, he used to, he used to make me train on my left side. And I said, but I'm not, I don't lead in on the backhand or the forehand on the left side. I lead in on the right side. He says, yeah, that's to balance you up so you don't get injured. And so he had this sort of completeness, which was way before the time. He made me do yoga in the 80s when yoga was unheard of. And I know every, every man and his dog does yoga now, but they didn't <laughs> in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, that's quite, yeah, that's a great approach. He obviously knew you quite well as well that, you know, as much as he appreciated how hard you were willing to work to get to your goals, that it was counterproductive. And I think that's a sign of a great coach, a great mentor to be able to identify that very quickly. You know, I, I wonder where he sort of fitted, fitted into the Egyptian scene, if you like. Do you know what I mean? Because he was out of Egypt a, a, a long time. But his flair and his... You know, his, his argument was that this is a creative endeavor that we're doing. And he says, if you give up on the creativity of this thing that you're doing, he says, you're just being sucked into what everyone else does. And when I watch the Egyptian uh, players play, uh, to me, and I know there's a thousand of them, so they're not all the same, but there's a, there's a thread going through it is that they treat this thing as a creative endeavor. And I know that you need to win and I know you need rankings and I know you need to earn money. But in general, I feel as though they treat it as a creative endeavor. They're doing something creative out there. One of the things that fascinates me about the Egyptians is if you look back to when the Australians were fairly dominant, there was a fairly typical Australian style and then a similar thing can be said about the English, but there's such a variety of different styles and they are all creative, but they're creative in different ways and they've all got different personalities and they express that on court. And it's hard to sort of simplify the Egyptian style into one characteristic. And I think that's yeah, great. But, but you know what that says to me? That says to me is, you know, the, the Australian approach to sport now across the board is to create factories, factories of sports people. The government pours heaps of money into it and they require uniformity across the board, right? So... Um, what ends up happening is you get robots coming out and very, very good robots in all sports. They're extremely good and they excel in things like swimming and stuff where it suits to be a robot. But the, the Egyptian approach to squash seems to me to be multiple threads, you know. So, so you know, they've probably got eight to ten world-class people from the 90s who are all giving their spin on it to a whole new generation of players. So what happens is you get diverse types of people, diverse types of styles, um, 
but not a factory approach. And, and I actually don't think Egypt is set up to do factory sport. You just get multiple threads. You know, I, I wrote down a, 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 an expression that, I, that I, I thought was right in relation to this. There's two things that happen in this lineage type idea. You get inherited skills, right? But you also get inherited belief. So you get the skills passed down through these threads and you get belief passed down these, these threads. So you get that the Egyptian players from the 90s handing down the skills, but also, so importantly, handing down the belief to the next generation. Um, and that's, I think, that's my best guess at how they get this domination. Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, I don't know if any of you guys have ever read The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle, but that was one of his big, one of his big uh, points in the book is, is that's, I think he calls it hot spots or something like that, where um, that it only takes like one person or one team or kind of like one, you know, event to spark that belief in the next generation. And then that's usually when you see this rise uh, and it could be out of nowhere um, of, of, you know, people wanting to chase that same dream. Yeah. And that's exactly, but, but that in, in essence doesn't fit the current nature of sport where it's all funded by, you know, if you have central funding, the only thing they can do is create factories. Yeah. But I think if you look at squash as a sport in comparison to what you're talking about with swimming and I'm sure there's plenty of other examples, but it's quite a chaotic game. There's a lot that happens. It's, it's not something you can really over plan or prepare for in advance. And I think that fits with the Egyptian personality and their culture. If you go to Cairo, it's absolute chaos on the roads <laughs> and like expecting yeah. something. And by the way, when you're, you guys know, when you're out there in a match, it's chaos, man. It's, there's nothing ordered about it at all. It's chaos, and you've got to deal with the chaos. And they seem to embrace that chaos better than some other nationalities. It's almost like it's just part of the way they live their life. So when it happens on a squash court, it's no big deal, and they're not trying to impose this order or structure on it. They're just happy to go with the flow and play on instinct, and it's yeah. obviously working for them. Can I ask you guys a question about the modern game? Because, you know, I, I sort of sit here in New Zealand and I don't really um, – I only get to see it on telly. I've got a couple of questions. So, you know, for instance, when the guys dive on the court, right? Yeah. And the court needs wiping. Yeah. Right? Wouldn't you, if you're tired – dive on the court all the time to get a break. <laughs> it's the same thing with reviews, right? You know, this review thing, I'd be reviewing every chance I get every time I was tired and injury breaks. You know, I, I just don't get it that, you know, the time when, you, when you're really in trouble and you've got on the end of a couple of hard rallies, you've got so many ways to get a break nowadays. Yeah, it's, it, it's been interesting watching some of those events where, you have one guy saying we need the court cleaned and then you have the other guy saying, no, no, we're good. Yeah. And it's it, yeah. Who do you, who do you believe? Right. And so who decides that? Who, whether you get to, the I'll refs, tell you what, mate, the I refs, would be diving. I, I, <laughs> I would be diving every second really. <laughs> I, I have seen the refs say like uh, the court looks fine, but then the players just freak out until they get their own way. Right. Sometimes. I think yeah. if both players agree, then the players can overrule the ref. But I think if there's disagreement, then the ref has the final say of yeah. who he believes most. Disagree. Um, 
just slip. Maybe we'll disagree. I don't know. I don't well, know if I'd well, fall I'm, on. I'm, I'm a bit <laughs> bewildered by that. I've got to say. Yeah. I don't know. If one thing I, it I opens up to so many opportunities to take a break. Yeah. Wasn't Del Harris famous for uh, throwing the ball in Hargada or out of the court back in the day? I mean, you know, let's be honest, Arthur. Uh, throwing the ball out of the court was something we did a thousand times. Doing up your shoelaces <laughs> was something we did a thousand times. But these are this is this is old school stuff. You know, they they're doing it. They've got all these new techniques that look clean. That look clean. I mean, uh, you know. What? One thing I'll say about diving is I wouldn't advise diving just for a rest break. I mean, you can do some serious damage with like burns and like skin coming off. And I would rather just play on tired than risk diving. And I reckon it, I honestly believe this is I think it's so much easier to play dirty these days than it was in the old days. Really? You guys will disagree with me on that, but you know, I'm watching it and I'm going let no let or stroke and I do not have the slightest clue which one of the three it's going to be and you know damn well if you had a good shot you just clip them slightly on the way through and they'll say they didn't make enough effort yeah I, I I'd agree I'd agree Stuart I and it was funny there it was probably about a year ago now I was sitting in a room with a with all the college squash coaches and we were getting like a little referee uh slideshow up on the screen yeah. And uh, the ref would go, what do you guys think this is? And all the college squash coaches would go, you know, that's a let. And, and he would play his clip and they'd say, no, that's a no let for this reason. And he was seeing, he was seeing like the, uh, the opposing kind of the, the person asking the let in the wrong, whereas the rest of us in the room who probably have a stronger and longer playing history than him, we all saw the guy hitting the ball, doing that just subtle, okay, yeah. subtle hip, and we all saw it. And 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 he's he's a PSA, you know, he's a top PSA guy, and he just didn't see what we saw, and it was comp- and we were on the exact opposite spectrum of probably like all three slides he showed, which was crazy. And you know, it's the easiest thing in the world to just move slightly, and no one's going to see it. Yeah. And, and- and also, you know, you've got to say, you know, I talked to Paul Cole about this at length and I was talking about Al Shabagi and I was talking about these top guys, especially Goltier. And I said to him, these guys are, are playing the same play all the time. They are fair and in the early part of the set. And then when it gets to the to, uh, nine all, it's dirty as hell. And, uh, and I said, you've got to do that. You've got to do that thing whereby once you get to nine you do anything you can and but you need to get the you need to get the referees confidence in the early stages by playing all nice in the early stages <laughs> i mean paul cole is an exception because he just plays nice all the time which sort of makes me sick but you know yeah yeah no i hear you well he's so strong he's so fit and fast he can just get around them if anyone's in the way yeah i know but that's his view but jesus you know you end up losing a lot of nine alls Especially when those guys and, are pulling those tracks. And you, and you also... And by the way, it's not a criticism of El Shabegi and Gaultier. They're doing what they have to do to win. Yeah, fair enough. And, and you also, as, as the opponent, you get lulled into thinking, like, maybe that guy's going to let you through um, right on a shot. And then at 9-all, yeah. they give you the hip, and you just, yeah. you just go into them a little bit soft, thinking they're going to let you through. And then it's a no-let because it looks like you have no effort. 
and like yeah. it's that cat and mouse right it's it's, it's nice I had, a, I had a really i had a funny situation with paul cole when he was uh when he was coming through and he you know inevitably what happens is that the top guys and we did the same thing you don't train with the guys uh um who are dangerous you never train you never allow them to acclimatize to the pace so you ignore them until they get really dangerous and then you're they're in the club so then you've got to let them into the club and then you've got to work them from the inside you know <laughs> and he was trying to get a training with Gregory Gaultier and, and at last he got to go to Paris or go to France to train with him and he posted all these things on Facebook like oh training with the master and all these you know looking up to him things and I texted him I said do you not realize this guy is the enemy you know he, he he you don't post good things about Gaultier on the on Facebook he is the enemy and the only reason he's agreed to train with you is because he's now going to work you from the inside i have to say that's one thing i hate about modern life in general is just this social media culture of praising everyone and you lose a match yeah. and you say gave it my all today i'm going to go away and work harder and come back stronger and full credit to my opponent for such a great performance <laughs> yeah like i when they, I when totally they mean, they mean totally zero of it yeah, yeah. It, I know. It's and it's it's come through professionalized sports, like like Stuart saying, just as much as it is everyday life. But it's, I mean, it, you look at the the NBA, for example. You watch the Michael Jordan documentary, and like those guys were true true enemies who do not speak to yeah. each other to this day. And then I just read an article that said head coaches in the NBA because they're all on the same campus in uh, Disney in Orlando head coaches are having to tell their players like you guys got to stop hanging out with your buddies on other teams yeah. because like we're about to play them in the first round of the playoffs yeah. and everyone's yeah posting social media pictures with their buddy who they're you know about to about to have to square off against it's you'd have to think it's going to soften you up a little but My also personal. you know there's the sort of the saccharine nature of these interviews you know El Shebang I'm not a criticism of him once again I'm only you know, only because he's on TV the most. Oh, and he's a fantastic player and and his time will come and I'm just so honoured to that. And, you know, how about we just cut the shit and see this for the brutal, for the brutal thing that it is. You are all trying to kill each other out there. I'm with you all the way, Stuart. My, my personal... Yeah, likewise. ...least, least favourite is... When you actually win the match and you say, yeah, I wasn't at my best today, but so-and-so made it so tough for me. <laughs> yeah, you're talking about Tarek moment, eh? You're talking about Tarek moment well, always. My interpretation of that has always been, you're so bad that even when I'm playing shit, I can still beat you. Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> I, I remember when I used to, when I used to play, um, I, I, when I stopped playing, I went along to a league match to watch an English league match in um, Leicester. And one of the guys who was who was there um, in my team was there, and I was talking to him afterwards. And he turned around to me at one stage and he says, "He says, actually, he says you're actually quite a good guy because when you were playing, we thought you were a real prick." <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate compliment. Yeah. My well, and I said to him, "I said, well, mate, I had to be." <laughs> my my move, my move in college squash, which is this kind of weird atmosphere because you're. 
you you sit down next to the guy you're about to play in an hour and a half and you have to ref you know your two teammates who are playing before you and so it's always small talk right the whole time you know how how's school going for you what you know what year are you or what are you doing um and then but like for me and I I've told this to kids I coach since to just try and see what like their mindset is like getting before a match because I was always perfectly cordial ask questions have a talk whatever and then, like, the second we walk away and go to warm up, in my head, I'm just cursing the dude out. Like, I'm using yeah. everything he just told me against him. Like, this guy is such an idiot. He didn't <laughs> think that was a let? <laughs> <laughs> and, then, and then for the next, you know, 50 minutes while I warmed up, I was just going off on him in my head. Um, yeah. So. I, mean, I, was... I, I, I wonder why we can't see sport for what it actually is. You know, <laughs> I mean, it's brutal out there. And it is incredibly competitive. And I just wonder why we have to put this, uh, I hesitate to say PC, I, 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 this sort of saccharine quality on it, because I don't think it enhances the sport. You no. know, I never watch after squash match interviews. Exactly what you're saying of these guys saying, oh, I didn't play well today, but he still, still won, didn't he? You know? That's what I loved about the uh, Michael Jordan documentary, is that he used to make up shit in his own head to motivate yeah. him to beat this guy. And he'd even sort of say it to the press, be like, oh yeah, he, he was talking smack. And then you see him, it's obviously it's 30 years later or 20 years later, or whatever. And it's like, did he actually say that? No, nah, nah, I just made it up <laughs> just, to mo- just to get going. <laughs> do, you know, do you know really watching that um, Michael Jordan thing, I watched it as well, that, made, that reminded me of Jahangir Khan in the respect that, you know, in that time in the 90s when Michael Jordan was just so much better, you could see he just thought, he was so much better than anyone else. And so as a result, he sort of became like two levels above every, anyone else. I think the only defense I would have for the sort of current environment is that if you were talking earlier about how you retired earlier because it was just such a pressure cooker and you maybe didn't feel like you had friends on tour and you didn't really want to go to tournaments and spend time with them. And maybe if you're going to play the game for 15 or 20 years, maybe it's necessary to get on with guys a little bit better and actually relish spending time with them a bit more. Yeah. I mean, the funny thing is my experience was that you did get on with guys um, on the tour, but what you tended to do is you kept in your factions, you kept in your, in your, in your groups. And for instance, the top guys definitely had a group going whereby, you know, they would, they would plan what they were doing together. And also the way it was, the way it was structured when, when with the Players Association was the top guys ran the Players Association completely, right? Um, and, and the top guys were in the business of keeping it a closed shop. We only had 16 draws, you know, 16-man draws. We, and that meant that if you made the first round, you're basically guaranteed that you're going to stay in the top 16 in the world. So there was a little bit of a a thing where everyone's just sort of, uh, the top guys are hanging together. And also identify, as I say, identifying the good guys coming through to try and beat them up before they can get there. <laughs> you were one of those, Arthur. Uh, I mean, I was trying. I tried for a very long time, got nowhere close. <laughs> <laughs> Didn't quite break into that top 16. No, far from it. And I wouldn't necessarily call myself a good lad, but I do appreciate that. Maybe off the court I was, I was you know. But Arthur, you know, the, the problem is you, you really just have to um, blame your background. I mean, with Willie Hosey as a role model, I mean, no chance. Can you get? Yeah, I, I actually think I exceeded expectations. <laughs> so, yeah. I used to spend I used to spend a lot of time with, with Willie in the early days in Dublin. 
and well, I had so much good time. And I'll tell you a true story. It's like, hey, Willie used to have some slightly, um, I hope you won't mind me saying this, slightly marginal friends. And he, <laughs> we, he, used, to, he used to have this flat in, the, um, in Dublin. And every so often, uh, someone would come and stay who we didn't know. They'd just come in and someone had sent them to stay. And anyway, this is a true story. I promise you this is a true story. Anyway, three days after this guy had gone, there was a major bombing and the guy who had stayed in our living room's face was on the telly as a IRA bomber. <laughs> and this is a true story. And I went to Willie and I said, Willie, that guy that stayed the other night, he's on TV. He's the bomber from, from up north. And Willie says, oh, he says, I thought he was funny when I saw he hadn't, didn't, hadn't paid his road tax. <laughs> <laughs> and he said nothing else about it. And I realized that those days, in those days, that, that, that sounds very weird to you now. But in those days, there were some very strange things happening. Yeah, no, we lived that like, like that even in the early 90s. <laughs> this is turning into a politics podcast. <laughs> we are apolitical here. <laughs> yeah. I was quite interested in what you were saying earlier about uh, Paul Cole and obviously you know him fairly well and what your take is on the rest of his career. I've actually predicted in one of our previous podcasts that he's going to come back as one of the informed players when the tour resumes just because, I think I said, he's not going to let himself get out of shape. He's, he's someone that is going to thrive on the physicality of the game when guys maybe aren't at their peak and maybe haven't been yeah. training as hard as they could have been. So I'm just curious what I saw. I saw a picture of him this week. He is shredded. He is. He is definitely in shape. Yeah, but apparently he's lost. He's he's lost weight. You know that he's gone for power rather than size. Yeah, his his uh, his his upper body looks super lean, and his legs were just like shredded tree trunks. When when Paul was like 60 in the world and like and struggling to come through, one thing I said to him was, you know, you, you need to. You need to you need to develop a style of game, you know, and and you need to develop your own style of game, and you need to be able to picture what that is, you know, and and you can't be copying other people. You've got to be the best in the world at a particular way of playing, and and if you are different, they'll they'll always find it hard to adapt to you. But if you copy someone's game or copy a group of people's game, it's easy to adapt to. So he came up with this, which I thought was, and he articulated it really well. He, he, his idea was he wanted to become the best counterattacker in the world. And, and the thinking behind this was he will sit back for periods in the game, and he will, but then he will come out in a burst for other periods of the game and volley and get right up the court and then fall back into a, into a, um, into a defensive mode. So chopping quickly between attacking hard and defending hard and just basically developed two shots around it was that straight drop of his and a, and a, a lob to get himself out of trouble, you know, and I've got to say he, when he was 60 in the world, he articulated this vision, but the thing that's amazing about him and I've never seen it in anyone, certainly in squash is his ability to execute uh, his strategy, you know, um, he is a person who 
if he decides to do something, I, 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 I'm not talking here in terms of deciding to get to five in the world or deciding to, I'm talking about how he's going to change his game and executing a type of strategy but because he's ruthless in doing it. He, he, you know, you know what it's like sometimes when you say, I'm going to change my game, but, but you've got to actually do it and you've got to actually be able to stick with it when you are losing because short term, sometimes there's not gains. You have to stick with it through the short term to get to the long term. He's got an amazing ability to, 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 to execute his, his style of play. Uh, I, I said to him one thing that, that he took on board. I said, I want you to do one thing. I don't even think about who you're playing or what their style is or anything. Uh, think about executing yours and imposing yourself on them. I said, it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to focus you on doing your thing. And it's going to mean that you're not all the time have cluttering your mind up with A plans and B plans and C plans and analyzing your opponents. Every opponent's the same. You're imposing yourself on your opponent and don't get mired up in tactics you do what you have to do out there and he's he really does do that he, he doesn't really have much to say about his different opponents before he plays he just goes on and does what he does i know he's number five in the world and it's easy to to admire the number five in the world i'm hugely i i, I i've seen so many squash players and I've just got huge admiration for Paul Cole. Um, he, he probably doesn't have the talent that a, that a whole lot of those other guys have got, but man, he can execute. That's one of the things I've, I've noticed watching him over the last year or two is that, that like ability to stick to the plan at like yep. all costs. And, and yep. obviously his like, his physical, his ability to push through pain and his, and just like the way he imposed himself physically is, is amazing. But the mental, his like ability to stay on task mentally is, is insane. And he only gets mad at himself when he does yeah. something that he isn't happy about. Like his decision, he, he gets the most mad on court, whether he's eight one up or, or it doesn't matter yeah. the score. If he does something that goes against what he's trying to do, I've noticed. Yeah, so there's this sort of a purist approach, isn't it? Not really thinking about whether I'm winning or losing. It's just the degree to which I execute this plan, which, which you know, so many people will talk about. You know, they'll go, you know, you listen to the golfers, they'll go, I just want to go out and hit the ball like I know I can do. And it's a really, really easy thing to say. But I tell you, it's not an easy thing to do. <laughs> and, and he shows the real ability to do that. The other quality that impresses me is his willingness to keep evolving and yeah. questioning the game and his open-mindedness. It's, it's quite easy, I think, for guys that are that driven and determined to become fixated on one type of game or just going down one path where it's getting fitter or stronger or doing one thing really well. But I've seen his game really develop and evolve and change over the last three or four years, and I think that's a credit to the way he approaches everything he's always looking for more information he's always looking to learn and challenge himself and I think that shows in the way he's playing now. Listen in what you just said is more information is not necessarily good you've got to have the filter and you know when I started talking to him I said you 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 can listen to me and you're entitled to throw anything out that doesn't fit you right 
and, and developing that filter as a, as a huge part of it. More information doesn't necessarily cut it. You've got to be able to take the information and use it, you know, for what, what suits you and what works for you. I remember um, when, he, when he was coming through, uh, through. like on the yeah. tour and then like seeing him go from the, you know, the, the hundreds to the sixties. And then just that, I'll never forget that season, that tournament in France. I think that was his breakthrough. It was like a 30 grand event, came through yeah. qualifying, made final, I think maybe even won it. Did the same yeah. thing the following week at the Irish Open uh, in the September previous to that. He had lost in a qualifying match, final qualifying round of a 15K in, in Washington, D.C. GW, actually, of all places. Uh, yeah. It was unbelievable. That not, like you saw, like he was, he's, I think he's always been pretty fit. He's obviously fitter, and he got fitter. But the quality of his length uh, of hitting and the pressure he could absorb and the pressure he could counter with is just phenomenal. I mean, he's probably not the most attractive, you know, compared to some of the Egyptian guys. He's probably, I enjoy watching him, but I've got a sort of a, a vested interest. But he's probably not as attractive to watch as some of those guys, is he? I, I, I find him exciting because he's, he's, he's like the athlete that uh, probably a lot of squash players wish they were. Like, you know, I can speak for myself. I, um, you know, I... I never, I never worked super hard. I was never the fastest guy, never the fittest guy, and I, but I love squash. And I mean, there's not that many athletes that come through our sport that are that, uh, that stand out like that, right? I mean, he's, yeah. he's, he's a beast. The problem is with your modern squash is that there's no place for non-athletes like me. I hear you, Stuart. <laughs> I, I think as a coach, I mean, you know, your modern squash is full of athletes. <laughs> what I love about his game from a coaching perspective is the way that I think squash going back 20 or 30 years was very attritional and that's that kind of got lost for a while but he's shown that there's still a place for that there's still a way for that game to be successful and effective and the basics yeah. are still just as fundamental as they were 20 or 30 years ago the importance of good length the importance of being fit and moving well he's shown that there is still a really valuable place for all of those things in the modern game yeah but but, let, but let's also be clear is that he he actually devised a new way of training for squash you know his bringing this crossfit into crossfit training into squash was a new thing and, and i would suggest to you probably a lot of the guys are copying him now and that um but you know that, that's a big thing to completely change the way that you physically prepare for a sport or, or devise your own way of physically preparing for a sport. It coincided with the CrossFit thing, but strength up to that time wasn't a huge factor, was it? And there's different types of strength. I watched those Miguel Angel Rodriguez jumping around all over the place. I mean, he's <laughs> certainly powerful. He's a lean powerful, but man, he's powerful. Yeah, he bounces off the floors. Yeah, and I remember uh, I had a friend who, who played for Harvard, um, and he went back to visit after he graduated when, when Ali Frog was still there. And um, he said he got on court with him and he felt like he was like the strongest dude he's ever been on a squash court with. And he just yeah. felt so inferior as an athlete on court with him. And then he said right after the training session, they had, uh, or, or maybe it was, you know, the same, the same uh, two day period. They had a strength session and they had a track session. And he said he couldn't, he couldn't like lift a weight like to save his life. And then he was getting lapped by like the entire uh, women's team on the track. Like he couldn't, 
like he had no ability to to transla- transfer that over to the gym but on on the squash court he he was you know he is what he is like he's he was yeah, that yeah. he was that then but we need to take it to account that that when that Ali Farag was a better squash player. So, so when you're playing someone who's better than you, you're always uncomfortable and you're always doing the extra. You know, Dadi always used to say to me, as, as long as the guy's doing more work than you, the game can go on forever. You've just got to make sure that he's running in the lane, two, two lanes outside you, and you're in the inside lane. And then it can just go on forever. He'll never feel comfortable. Um, and I, I'd suggest to you that when you're playing Ali Farag at squash, he will feel stronger than you because he's doing so much less work yeah i had a coach that used to always say you can be twice as fit as someone but if you're doing three times as much work you're going to get tired quicker yeah and i like the analogy of running on the track and and you know you you you've just got to make the guy run two lanes outside you and then you don't need to get impatient you just keep the game going because he can't beat you as long as he's running two lanes outside you might steal that one <laughs> yeah, you can have that one. That's a Dardier yeah. one. You, you'll have to credit him. Dardier, quote unquote. <laughs> Little Egyptian man. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm all out of stories. <laughs> well, uh, Stuart, man, that was that was amazing. Like, we got, that was good. Yeah. I enjoyed it. Yeah, thanks a million, man, for coming on. Really, really appreciate it. Love your insights. It's a lot good. of fun. Yeah. All right. Nice meeting you guys. Yeah, you, you too, as, man. You uh, as well. Yeah. Enjoy Have a nice that. night or day or whatever it is. <laughs> yeah, you yes. enjoy that. Uh, enjoy that Corona-free living. Two thirty-six <laughs> in the morning here in Italy, so bedtime. <laughs> All right. See you later. Awesome. See you. Thanks, Thanks, Thanks man. Bye-bye. Take it easy. What a guy. That was fun. Yeah. All right, nice one. Uh, thanks a million to Stuart Davenport for coming on the show. Absolute legend of a player and what a guy. I'll also be uh, onto Willie Hosey to, to make sure he's still not hanging out with the wrong crowd. Shout out to Crawford, who stayed up till half two in the morning in Italy as he continues his retreat, but still shows that pod commitment. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Chris. As always, it's been a blast. It's another episode in the bank. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you did like what you heard, please don't be shy and share it to your friends and check us out on Around the Court Squash Podcast on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. I uh, hope you're all doing well and uh, enjoying being back on a squash court. Nice one. Cheers. We done.